Welcome to Season 6, Episode 8 of the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer using the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne. Each week, we use a movie, a novel, or a short story to study different storytelling principles so that we can deepen our understanding of story and level up our craft. My name is Anne Hawley, and I will be leading the discussion today. Here with me are my fellow roundtablers, Leslie Watts, Kim Kessler, and Valerie Francis. Before we get started, I'd like to tell listeners about pages and platforms. This is a service that I run with my fellow StoryGrid certified editor, Rochelle Ramirez, and certified book launch coach, Sue Campbell. We gave a fabulous workshop last weekend here in Portland called From Writer to Author. It's an intensive dive into book marketing, being your own editor, and learning how to talk about your book. Participants took a field trip to Powell's City of Books on Saturday evening, and we ended the weekend with the the transformative experience of writing and presenting a great blurb for our own works in progress. It was fantastic. We're planning to host another From Writer to Author workshop in the coming months. And in the meantime, we regularly present free Ask the Editors and Ask the Book Launch Coach calls live. So be sure to visit pagesandplatforms.com and sign up to be notified of upcoming events. Well, this week I'm looking at Elizabeth Gilbert's 1993 short story, Pilgrims, in order to continue my study of short stories and what makes them tick. This is the story that Elizabeth Gilbert talks about in her book, Big Magic. It was her big break, the one she finally sold directly to Esquire magazine. It's the one that got her an agent and launched her writing career. And there's a little more about that coming up in a couple of minutes. The story runs 4,300 words and appeared in the November 1993 edition of Esquire magazine, and it's still available to read online, so we'll link you to that. As always, this is an adult conversation, and you may hear some adult words. It's a little difficult to divide a 4,300-word story into three clear acts, but let me give it a shot here. In the beginning hook... When Buck's father hires 19-year-old Martha Knox to work on his Wyoming horse ranch, Buck and his brother Crosby must come to terms with the idea of working with a girl. He decides she's okay, and they spend a summer working together. In the middle build, while overseeing a hunting trip for city slickers, Buck and Martha get to know each other better in a long conversation around the campfire. As they get drunk, Martha's questions encourage Buck to open up about himself, and he decides to disclose a traumatic accident from his past that sets him apart from his big brother and his father. In the ending payoff, Martha in her turn tells a traumatic story from her own past, causing Buck to feel closer to her. When he challenges her to ride off with him to Mexico right then and there, and she agrees. He has to decide whether he really meant it. He gets on her horse with her, but they both fall off. Neither of them really wants to run away. So that's the story in a little tiny nutshell. Let's talk about genre. Kim, I think you have the first word on that. Yeah, I felt a worldview education vibe for our narrator, Buck, when I first read it. And Martha Knox felt similar to the kind of mentor that we saw in the character Dot in Fundamentals of Caring. And so even though they're both on a journey of sorts, she seems to know herself and model what it is to own your identity. And that's what really came through for me. I think I agree with you. I started out thinking that I could see a status story because Buck kind of seems to be competing with his father and brother or comparing himself to them, looking for esteem from everyone uh, in the story. But I think you're right about world re-education. Martha changes his worldview from thinking it's weird to work with a girl on the ranch to accepting her not just as his equal, but his actual superior as a cowboy. She seems to give him the courage to think about running away on a pilgrimage of his own. And then in the attempt, he realizes that he's not really cut out for that. He sees himself for what he really is and I think where he really belongs. It's funny because with worldview education stories, I often get to the end and think, well, I really enjoyed that, but what the heck was it? And then have to go back and look at it. Now, in other episodes, I've mentioned that James Scott Bell's shattering moment concept in short stories, that there is a moment that we explore in a short story that can come before or after or at the beginning, middle or end of the story that the story is really about. 
If there is no shattering moment in a story, I find you really do miss it and the story doesn't quite work. So my hypothesis, piggybacking on Bell's concept, is that the life value shift that arises from the shattering moment determines the global genre, but also the best short stories seem to be the ones that are about one of the five commandments of storytelling. To me here, Buck is used to people not taking him seriously. And with when Martha Knox does take him seriously, his suggestion to ride to Mexico, Buck experiences this shattering moment. The story feels like a huge turning point in his life. And it's that moment when somebody, in this case, Martha, finally takes him seriously, and he must decide whether he's going to take himself seriously or not, and acknowledge agency in accepting his life as it is. So all of these elements communicate worldview education to me. I love that shattering moment concept, and I keep forgetting about it. So thank you for reminding me. That's a wonderful insight and something we could all be bearing in mind as we study short stories. Well, I chose this week's short story mostly for the story that lies behind it. Elizabeth Gilbert talks about writing and rewriting Pilgrims in Big Magic. That's her 2015 book on creativity. And it had a real impact on me. It was instrumental in the long process of rewriting my own novel, Restraint. And it has continued to resonate with me as I tackle shorter form new writing myself. Now, for those who aren't familiar with it, Big Magic does much of what Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art does, but from a more feminine perspective. And like The War of Art, Big Magic is a book that I revisit at least annually to keep my creative professionalism going. Here's the story from the audiobook read by Liz Gilbert. Let's give it a listen. The first short story I ever published was in 1993 in Esquire magazine. The story was called Pilgrims. It was about a girl working on a ranch in Wyoming, and it was inspired by my own experience as a girl who had worked on a ranch in Wyoming. As usual, I sent the story out to a bunch of publications unsolicited. As usual, everyone rejected it. Except one. A young assistant editor at Esquire named Tony Freund plucked my story out of the slush pile and brought it to the editor-in-chief, a man named Terry McDonnell. Tony suspected that his boss might like the story because he knew Terry had always been fascinated with the American West. Terry did indeed like Pilgrims, and he purchased it, and that's how I got my first break as a writer. It was the break of a lifetime. The story was slated to appear in the November issue of Esquire, with Michael Jordan on the cover. A month before the issue was to go to press, however, Tony called me to say there was a problem. A major advertiser had pulled out, and as a result, the magazine would need to be several pages shorter than planned that month. Sacrifices would have to be made. They were looking for volunteers. I was given a choice. I could either cut my story by 30% so that it would fit in the new, slimmer November issue, or I could pull it from the magazine entirely and hope it would find a home, intact, in some future issue. I can't tell you what to do, Tony said. I will completely understand if you don't want to butcher your work like this. I think the story will indeed suffer from being amputated. It might be better for you, then, if we wait a few months and publish it intact. But I also have to warn you that the magazine world is an unpredictable business. There may be an argument for striking while the iron is hot. Your story might never get published if you hesitate now. Terry might lose interest in it, or who knows, he might even leave his job at Esquire and move to another magazine, and then your champion will be gone. So I don't know what to tell you. The choice is yours. Do you have any idea what it means to cut 30% from a 10-page short story? I'd worked on that story for a year and a half. It was like polished granite by the time Esquire got their hands on it. There was not a superfluous word in it, I believed. What's more, I felt that Pilgrims was the best thing I'd ever written, and as far as I knew, I might never write that well again. It was deeply precious to me, the blood of my blood. I couldn't imagine how the story would even make sense anymore, amputated like that. Above all, my dignity as an artist was offended by the very idea of mutilating my life's best work simply because a car company had pulled an advertisement from a men's magazine. What about integrity? What about honor? What about pride? If artists do not uphold a standard of incorruptibility in this nefarious world, who will? On the other hand, screw it. Because let's be honest, it wasn't the Magna Carta we were talking about here. It was just a short story about a cowgirl and her boyfriend. 
Well, Liz made the necessary cuts. Yes, it changed the essence of her story. She says the result was neither better nor worse than the original, just different. It was published in Esquire, it got her representation by a major agent, and it launched her career. Does the story work? I think so. But it does leave a lot up to the reader, as Leslie was just saying, and a quick scan through Goodreads tells me that it didn't work for a lot of readers. The irony of modern short stories seems to be that while they are quick to read, a lot of them don't supply every single thing you need to be perfectly sure of the meaning or the intention or the ending or even the story type. This kind of short story demands close attention, rereading, some extra consideration, and it takes more time than you might think. Now, when we know that the author spent a year and a half honing and polishing this story before she had to cut 30% of it for Esquire, we know that this kind of story doesn't just fall out of the keyboard and onto the screen. I think it's safe to say, as I've been saying with our other two short stories so far this season, that every word choice is carefully considered. It has to be. To put plot, characterization, this great dialogue, she's really good with dialogue, plus layers of meaning and nuance all across in 4,300 words. So I'd like to go through the structure of Pilgrims briefly and then look at some specific word choices and motifs that help carry the meaning in subtext. First of all, it's 4,300 words can be split by my count into nine beats, and here's what I think they are. Beat one, Buck and Crosby are shocked to learn that their dad has hired a girl to work with them on the ranch. Beat two, meeting Martha Knox. This is largely a physical description of her, and it is really one of the better physical descriptions of a female character that I've ever read. Beat three, Buck and Martha go dancing at a bar in town. Beat four, in a conversation around the campfire, Buck discloses his past trauma. Beat five, as the conversation continues, Buck and Martha establish that Buck's brother Crosby isn't really a rival for her affections. Beat six, still around the campfire, Martha discloses her own past trauma, which in beat seven encourages Buck to dare her to run away with him. In beat eight, Martha accepts the challenge and they get on her horse, and in beat nine, they try but fail falling off the horse and laughing. Now you can see a simple story arc there. It's not a love story, at least I didn't read it as primarily one, though Buck feels like he should make some overtures in that direction, and there are hints of attraction and sexuality throughout. They're both young people, Martha's 19 years old, and Buck is the younger of two sons on their father's ranch, so some hints of a love story feel almost inevitable in this case. Let's start with the title, Pilgrims. Pilgrims are only mentioned once in the text. Part of the family business is running a kind of dude ranch or guided hunting tour service for city slickers. Five of them are asleep in the tents as the long conversation around the campfire goes on, and Martha refers to them as a bunch of pilgrims. The word has to speak for itself. It's only in there once plus the title. Pilgrims are people on a journey towards something they believe in. It's a journey of faith. It's not supposed to be easy or cushy. Pilgrimages are famously supposed to be difficult. The city slickers from Chicago are angry at Buck for, quote, not being able to make them good enough shots to kill any of the elk we'd seen that week. They've come out here to Wyoming to try to become something they aren't, or to experience something powerful that might be more of a fantasy than a reality. A little earlier in the text, at the beginning, Buck's dad tells him that Martha, quote, showed up somehow from Pennsylvania in the sorriest piece of shit car he'd ever seen, unquote, looking for a ranch job. She, too, has made a kind of pilgrimage, all the way from Pennsylvania to Wyoming in a crappy car. In the end, Buck proposes another pilgrimage, a journey on horseback over the Great Divide and eventually to Mexico. He fantasizes briefly about how they'll become bank robbers, like in the Old West. So we can see how the one-word title, bolstered by a few carefully chosen details, tells us what the story is probably really about. Coming to terms with the life you've got after going out and exploring something and coming back to it. And that is worldview education, more or less, in eight words. Coming to terms with the life you've got. All three pilgrimages in the story are likely to end with the pilgrims going home again, as pilgrimages generally do end. Will they have found meaning? The story is tacit on that point. 
And that's the open-ended ending that bugs many readers of this kind of short story. It doesn't tell you what to feel or what to conclude. Closer scrutiny of the text gives us a few more hints. There's a motif of up and over that recurs about 10 times. Now, 10 times in 4,300 words could not be accidental. It's not just lazy writing. She wanted you to notice that. The up and over motif is most vivid when Buck is describing lying in a hospital for a year following a bad rodeo accident. His father sits with him every day, smoking cigarettes and flicking the still burning butts up and over poor Buck's stabilized head and neck. So damn bored, Buck says, the only thing I lived for was seeing those butts go flying over my face to the toilet. There is a fair bit of humor in this story, and that's a pretty funny line. An accident bad enough to hospitalize a young man for a year is a major life trauma. Buck's father made big sacrifices for him, and it's not hard to pick up nuances of his feeling less than both his brother and his father, of being unlike them. Maybe he doesn't quite fit in with his family. Worldview education protagonists often don't. Look at George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life for a really good example of this. The story is bookended by mentions of going up and over a mountain pass. In the opening beat, the dad chides Buck's older brother Crosby because he can't get up and over Dutch Oven Pass without falling asleep on his horse. Towards the end, Buck proposes that he and Martha make their escape up and over the Washakie Pass, the only way to get across the Great Divide. But they aren't going to go up and over. They're going to fall off their horse, just as Buck fell off his bronc in the rodeo accident. Instead of going up and over, he explicitly, in that instance, went down and under the horse. At the end of the story, when Buck and Martha have fallen off her horse and are lying in the nighttime meadow, looking up at the sky, he tells us, This one star, though, left a slow, thin arc, like a cigarette, still burning, flung over our heads. That's the end of the quote. A meteor quick to burn out, a meteoric rise and fall. Is that all there is for Buck? Lying still and watching things happen over his head? Maybe not. The very last line, which follows that one, tells us that Martha might have seen the shooting star too, but it's not the kind of thing she'd mention. To me, that said that Martha isn't much bothered by Buck's immaturity or his being the younger brother or a lesser cowboy than she is herself. This might be the beginning of a love story, or at least a story of genuine kindness. As I've talked about before, and as Liz Gilbert relates in the story behind the story, not a single word in a short story this lean is there by accident. This goes well beyond the typical writing advice of cutting adverbs and filler words, though you'd certainly have to do that too. This is a case of knowing exactly what you want to write about, your genre, your theme or controlling idea, your setting, your narrative device, everything in your characters, of course, and choosing important words like pilgrim and significant motifs like a shooting star that do double and triple duty with layers of meaning. It means writing the story, then going back and removing things until it breaks, and then putting one thing back in so that it works at the most minimal level. Or maybe, depending on the reader, it even remains broken. Nothing you write is going to be for everyone. So now I'm going to turn it over to Kim, who's going to talk to us about finding genre with conventions and obligatory moments in a story that is this short. It's an interesting task. I really enjoyed this story. It ended the way that most short stories end, which is before I was ready. It's like a great song that you wish was longer. But like a great song, you can just listen to it again. And I did. I've read the story several times, and each time I find myself caught up in the way it makes me feel, a sense of longing for something that I can't quite name. That is my impression of Buck, too, and I think an element at the root of worldview education stories. Whether they are consciously aware of it or not, they are trying to figure out where they fit in the world. When Leslie and I were first studying internal genres, she had the amazing insight to call it significance, their personal significance in the world. This is something I've noticed about each of the worldview genres. They are directly tied to the protagonist's view of themselves in relation to the outside world. So in education, this is about the individual finding or gaining meaning and significance in their role within the larger world that allows them to continue in their role with new purpose. Disillusionment, on the other hand, is about the individual losing the meaning and significance of their role in the larger world, and it erodes their sense of purpose in that role. But without a present and adequate mentor, they're stuck. 
Maturation is often a change in the subjective truth from seeing others and therefore themselves within a black and white definition to recognizing the flaw in that definition. Things are not always what they seem. People are more like you than you thought. And that once they see this now requires new action. And revelation is a change in an objective truth about themselves and the world around them that once they learn requires new action. So today I wanted to continue our exploration of how writers use conventions and obligatory scenes to convey the genre. Because conventions and obligatory scenes aren't just arbitrary must-haves for your story, they are specific tools to establish and change the life values of your story. They set up and then pay off reader expectations and ultimately create the genre pattern of change. In this story, the change is subtle and covert, but a core emotion is still evoked in me and leaves me wanting more. And for me, that's a short story that works. So let's look at the characters, setting, and circumstances of Pilgrims and see what we see. Now, whether you're looking at your own scene or story or you're analyzing another writer's work, it's important to not make yourself try to figure it out too soon. Just apply the tools first to completion and then see what stands out to you. I'm not going to go through everything that I did for this story, which you'll be able to find in the show notes, but I'd like to point out a few key things that helped me come to my conclusion about the genre. Here's some of the characters. We've got Buck's old man. We have Buck, who is our point of view character and our protagonist. Martha Knox, the 19-year-old girl that Buck's old man has hired. Crosby, Buck's older brother. Then we learn about the women who couldn't even work as cooks on the ranch because the Wranglers, which is another character, would get shot up over them, even the ugly cooks, which is kind of a funny thing that they talk about at the beginning. We learn about the bronc that put Buck in the hospital. We learn about the five hunters from Chicago and the girls that Crosby thought he knew his way around. Agnes, which is Martha's sister, who's not in the story, but Martha talks about her. And then Handy, which is Martha's Appaloosa horse that she bought off Buck's old man, which I think is actually a really important character. And then different pieces of the setting. We learn that this is a ranch. We learn that Martha came from Pennsylvania. We learn about Dutch Oven Pass, which I looked up and is actually in Wyoming. And we learn about once this season, which is basically where Crosby's unable to go over Dutch Oven Pass even once this season without falling asleep. And that tells us that they go back and forth over the pass multiple times throughout the season, which is also interesting about going back and forth but never really going anywhere. You're traveling, but you're not really leaving. We learn about Martha's sorriest piece of shit car, which I think says a lot about her and her determination. And we learn that Buck's old man has 85 of his own horses, and that tells you the kind of ranch that they're on. We hear about going down the mountain. We hear about the dance, which is presumably at a bar. But when I looked back, she doesn't ever actually tell us where that is. It's just interesting how much we bring our own imaginations and fill in the scene. I had them at a honky-tonk, and it was very clear in my mind. We learn about the bunks and the campsite. We learn it's the middle of October. We're in the Wyoming Rockies, the rodeo, the hospital, and the meadow and the sky. So again, these are just things that tell us sort of things about the time and the place when the story has taken place in the present and also things from the past. Now the circumstances. When we're talking about conventions, these circumstances relate to the characters and the setting. And what's tricky about this story is in this case, a story this short the circumstances are really what we're trying to suss out throughout the whole thing and really what we kind of go back and reflect on afterwards. We're really asking ourselves, who is Buck and what are the circumstances at the opening of the story? What does it mean to him to work with his dad and brother on the ranch? Who is Martha Knox and what are the circumstances behind her life? So again, these are all things that we're trying to figure out and they're not really clear at the opening of the story the way that they would be in a longer work. So then, using Anne's beat breakdown, I went through the scenes and I looked to see what are these moments that really stand out to me, that feel meaningful. We know that Buck and Crosby are shocked when their dad hires a girl. And one thing that really stood out to me there was that dad likes Martha Knox. He approves of her. And also, the name Knox, which is referred to later as Fort Knox, is a place imbued with value and it's worth a lot. So I thought that was really interesting. In beat two, it's the slow dancing. Martha Knox doesn't need approval. She isn't vying for attention. She knows her worth. In beat three, it's the first part of the conversation around this campfire. It's this getting to know you, and Buck discloses his past about the rodeo. And in that, I noted that the story mentions the word bored 
And it comes up four times in the story, which again, we know is not by accident. And this also seems to point to a life without purpose, going back and over the past, back and forth, back and forth without ever really going anywhere. So this idea about really being bored with your own life. In beat four, again, the conversation continues. This is where we learn about Crosby and how he thinks he knows his way around girls. And here, Martha really talks about, you know what they call me at home? Fort Knox. You know why? Because I wouldn't let anyone in my pants. And again, this speaks to knowing her own value and not needing to prove anything to anyone. In beat five, Martha discloses her own past and talks about the time that her father pushed her sister down and punched her in the face. And then she ends the story with a joke. But I think it isn't to say that the whole story isn't true. It's just she kind of teases Buck at the end. And so Martha teases Buck about being gullible. And she uses the words, the most gullible man I know on this planet. And I think that's a dig at Buck's self-worth, which she's just teasing. But for someone maybe already as sensitive as Buck, I think it really does feel like a dig. And so that's why I think in that moment, Buck challenges Martha to run away. And again, as Leslie pointed out, Martha takes him seriously. And she says, don't waste my time saying things that you don't mean. And then at the end, she tells him, you're just limited limited, which is also a dig, again, at Buck's self-worth. So in Beat 7, Martha accepts the challenge. And this is one part where she's getting she's getting her horse ready. And here's the quote. She found Handy, and he let her bridle him. The spots over his back and rump in the almost dark were ugly, like accidental spots, like mistakes. I said, you know, my old man got this horse from its owner for $100. The guy hated it so bad. They should have named him Handful. Should have named him Handsome, she said. Look at those pretty legs. I hate an Appaloosa. I hate them all. Now, Buck's despising of Handy the Appaloosa horse feels like a stand-in for his own self-loathing. But Martha Knox sees value in him despite what others, even himself, may think. In Beat 8, this is where they try but fail and they fall off the horse. And here's another quote. Martha said, You're a good horse, Handy. Not with the voice we always use for horses, but in her normal voice, and she meant it. I didn't think she wanted me to kiss her, although it was true that I wanted to kiss her then. She looked great. On that frozen dead ground, she looked as good and important as new grass or berries. You're a good horse, she told Handy again, and she sounded very sure of that. Martha Knox tells Handy, which again, I'm saying is a symbol for Buck, that he is handsome and you're a good horse in her normal voice, not the one where the words don't matter. This feels like she's talking to Buck, that he is good. A few lines earlier, Buck has observed Martha Knox on the ground when he says, you know, I didn't think she wanted me to kiss her. And then he says, she looked great on that frozen dead ground. She looked as good and important as new grass or berries. And note the words good and important. So when Martha Knox tells Handy that he is good, I hear her telling Buck that he is important. Now, the more I look at the story, the more similarities I see to fundamentals of caring, which might sound totally absurd, but hear me out. In that story, Trevor, who was stuck in a wheelchair, and then Buck, who was stuck in that hospital bed neck brace for over a year, both were trapped in their life. And it is likely that what led Buck to the rodeo life in the first place was the search for significance, just like Trevor wanting to seek out his father. Both things turned out to be a bust. Buck falls and gets drug around the arena, and Trevor learns that his dad never wrote to him at all. But both characters had a mentor in the form of a woman who saw something in them that is significant, that they are enough just the way they are. At the end of Fundamentals of Caring, Dot tells Trevor he is, quote, handsome and cool. And then she kisses him before leaving with her own father. And often it takes someone else seeing us this way first in order for us to see ourselves this way. And I think this is the big meta why of worldview education stories. None of us are trapped in our lives. And when we can feel our own significance, often first through the eyes of others and then our own, we can have peace in our role and live full lives right where we are. That's wonderful, Kim. Isn't it interesting that we have said far more than 4,300 words, finding meaning, uh, digging up and uncovering the subtext in this story is just amazing. You found things that I didn't spot even. It's just great. Valerie, you were less than keen on Wolves of Karelia as a working story back in episode four, and I think you're kind of in the same position here with Pilgrims. I hope I've made a case for the story, so I'm interested to hear your case against it. I'm just going to come off like a real 
crank <laughs> on this episode. But <laughs> let me explain where I'm coming from. First off, and when I was listening to your presentation, I absolutely agree with you about the imagery that's in this story and the economy of word choice. And these are things that are really important in short stories, right? Because they are short. So everything has to do double and triple duty. So yes, I see all the pretty line writing. Absolutely. And I can see all the pretty images. No argument from me there. But for all that, what I can't see is the pretty story structure. Anyone who's read Sean's book will know that whether we like it or not, when it comes to the craft of storytelling, structure trumps fine line writing. Of course, as Sean says, and this is a quote, when line by line and global story magic come together, our jaws drop. That's on page 36 if you have the print version. That line jumped out at me when I first read the book because that's the goal, right? That is our ultimate goal as writers. And the whole purpose of our leveling up our craft is to be able to marry these two skills, the structure and the line writing. So <laughs> clearly you've guessed that I don't really think Pilgrims works that well. I've been struggling with it for a couple of days because, I mean, this is Elizabeth Gilbert, right? I mean, I just expected that it would work. Anne mentioned that Gilbert was forced to significantly shorten this piece prior to publication. So I'm guessing that maybe that's where the problems that I see as problems crept in. Since this is StoryGrid, though, what we're here to do is provide objective feedback on subjective art. So let me talk about the specific principles of storytelling that I think fall short in this piece. And I think the best place to start is the genre. I cannot, for the life of me, contort my mind enough to see this as a global education story. Now, I've heard what you said, Anne, and I heard what you, heard what you said, Kim, and I absolutely do see where you're coming from. But to get there, it requires a whole lot of mental gymnastics, and it just made me angry. <laughs> I see it as a courtship love story, or perhaps it's more accurate to say that it's a story of unrequited love. Our protagonist, Buck, is in love with Martha Knox, or has a crush on her at least. And Martha, it seems, is in love with Crosby, or at least is enamored by him to some degree. Unrequited love is wonderful stuff for a story because it's rich with tension and conflict. It creates an underdog type of hero, and it offers up the possibility of a bittersweet ending, that win-but-lose, lose-but-win ending we, we try to strive for all the time, right? And the irony here, and believe me, the irony is definitely not lost on me, is that a story about unrequited love would actually pair beautifully with a global education story. But I don't think Pilgrims quite pulled it off. To me, this story feels like it's stillborn. Okay, so while the setup of an unrequited love story is fantastic, I don't think this version of the story paid off that setup. Let's look at what we actually have here on the page. As far as scene types go, we have primarily two drunk people sitting in a room talking and a truth comes out. Now, where did we see this before? Remember our girl on the train episode when Anne so brilliantly pointed out how many of these types of talking head scenes there were? Well, if you have not yet listened to the girl on the train episode, I highly recommend you do that because Anne's talk in that episode is truly is br brilliant. It's filled with nuggets of gold. The point of this kind of scene is to give the reader or audience a new piece of information. So if that's the case, what did we learn here? Well, we learned that Martha's up for anything. She's adventurous, she likes adrenaline, and she's independent. That's why she's willing to go with Buck, but on her own horse. She won't steal from Buck's father, and you got to admire her for that. The problem is, we knew all that before. We knew it all from the way she showed up on the farm asking for a job, and Buck knew it too. Okay, so what else do we learn? We learn that Buck is in love with Martha, or at least seems to have feelings that are stronger than a crush. After all, he wants her to go away with him. But we already knew that because he asked her to dance with him and because he gives us so many details about the way she looks and how her unconventional beauty is attractive to him. We also learned that he's, I'm saying cowardly, but I think cowardly is 
too strong a word. And to be honest, I'm just grasping right now for the right adjective. Maybe it's fearful or, or tentative. He's tried adventure in the rodeo and he's loath to try it again. And honestly, not that anyone could blame him because it certainly was a bad accident and that is traumatic. So what I'm saying here is that it doesn't surprise us when he backs down from his plan to go to Mexico. All right, this leads me to the five commandments of storytelling. They exist to move a story forward and to reveal character. Remember that character is revealed by action or by choice under pressure. That pressure is created when the turning point gives rise to a crisis question for the protagonist. And the crisis question must be a dilemma. A simple choice between right and wrong or good and evil does not constitute a dilemma. It also doesn't hold any tension or raise any stakes because the reader knows exactly what the protagonist will choose. He'll choose what's right. And in these kinds of highly polarized choices, the right thing for the protagonist is pretty easy to spot. So since Buck is the protagonist, the crisis question, as near as I can figure it, and Leslie alluded to this when she spoke at the beginning of the episode, it comes after Martha says she'll go with him to Mexico. Should he actually go with her or not? Now, this is not an awful crisis question, but it's not been set up the way it should have been and could have been, and maybe was in the original version. As a result, it isn't used to its full potential. For this crisis to really pack a punch, we'd have to understand that Buck is unhappy on the ranch and is longing for more, or that he's so head over heels in love with Martha that he's willing to give it all up and run away with her. He's got a crush on her for sure, but running away strikes the reader, or at least this reader, as rather sudden. I was like, okay, wait a minute. Where did this come from? Also, we're not led to believe that Buck is looking to leave the ranch. In fact, it sounds like the ranch work or the life he has is all right with him. So, I mean, his father did help him and nurse him back to health after his accident and all that good stuff. So I think that had this been set up better, Gilbert could have gotten a lot more bang for her buck out of this particular crisis. Furthermore, the crisis question is an opportunity for the writer to reveal something about the character that the reader did not know before. Up to this point, we know that Buck is fearful or tentative or hesitant. He's clearly in his brother's shadow. He asks Martha to dance only once and, and so on. There's lots of things here to point to Buck as a sort of a tentative type of guy. So this crisis moment then is a chance to show the reader another side of him. But what we see actually is more proof of his fear. His proposal of adventure is so against character that we aren't surprised when he backs down. I've been doing a deep dive into character development lately in my own study off the podcast. And one of the things I've come across is Robert McKee's notion of dimensional and flat characters. Both have a role to play in storytelling. So like every other principle that we're studying, our jobs as writers is to know what the principles are and what they do. That way, when we're crafting our stories, we'll know which tool to choose to create the effect that we want. Now, McKee says that the protagonist and major characters of a story need to have dimension. And by that, he means they need to have sets of conflicting attributes. The example he gives is that of a patriot who refuses to pay his taxes. In Pilgrims, this would mean that Buck could be fearful in one area, but brave in another. And Martha could be strong and independent in one area, but needs help in another. The protagonist and any major characters need multiple dimensions or multiple sets of contradictory attributes. Minor characters need to be flat, that is, without dimension. Why? Because dimensions draw the reader's attention, and we, as writers, want to keep the attention on the protagonist and any major characters that we have in our story. Minor characters, therefore, have one trait only. For example, a sidekick is loyal. And, by the way, minor does not mean unimportant. Both Buck and Martha are well-described. Their portraits have been painted very well. There's no argument from me there. However, 
while we get a great sense of who they are, we don't get any contradictions within their characters. They are who they are. And there's no opportunity to show us a different aspect of them because there aren't any solid crisis moments. And it's the crisis moments where the contradictions and the depth of character are revealed. And just look at the Alice Monroe story that we did. That is rich with contradiction. Grant is a multidimensional character there. Now let's look at the forces of antagonism here in Pilgrim, since that's what I'm focusing on this season here on the podcast. I've been doing a lot of study on this lately too, and I recently came across this little gem from John Truby's The Anatomy of Story, and I think it applies here. In the quote I'm about to read, Truby is talking specifically about love stories with two well-defined lovers. Now, we get a lot of questions here at StoryGrid from authors who are writing love stories from both lovers' points of view. And what those authors want to know is, in this kind of situation, are both lovers of equal importance to the story? Or is one of them higher in the story hierarchy than the other? And if so, which one? Here's what Truby has to say. When you give one character the desire line, you automatically make him or her the more powerful character. In terms of story function, this means that the lover, the desired one, is actually the main opponent, not the second hero. And that's in chapter four, if you have that book and you want to look it up. So given this, is Martha or Buck the antagonist? Since Buck is the point of view character, and presumably the protagonist, I think he's the protagonist, it's easy to assume that Martha would be the antagonist. But there's a problem, and it's a big problem. Neither Buck nor Martha have clearly defined objects of desire. Buck, it seems, would like to have a relationship with Martha. But is he enamored with her enough for it to be considered an object of desire? Well, I think it's the closest thing we have to an object of desire here because he does ask her to dance. He does ask her to run away with him. He talks about her unconventional beauty and so on. In that case, then, Martha would indeed be the antagonist. And I think you can build a case for that. I think there's plenty in the story uh, to look at her that way. Now, Crosby forms the third point in a love triangle, but I don't think he is elevated enough to the status of antagonist, but I would consider him an obstacle if we're going to look at this as a love story. But here's the thing I want listeners to take away. Buck is also struggling with himself. He needs to be drunk to get up the courage to ask Martha to dance with him, and he needs to be drunk to ask her to run away with him. Buck admits to wanting to touch her braid, but if he has true depth of feeling for her, he may not be admitting it to himself. Not fully, not entirely. So when a main character is struggling with himself in some way, he is both protagonist and antagonist. So the bottom line here is that I think there's tons of potential in the story. It's, uh, you know, beautifully imagined. It's, it's got great line writing. However, I think it falls short on the fundamentals of storytelling. And as a result, it doesn't work. I'd really love to see the previous version because I'm betting that the weaknesses I'm seeing here would have been addressed there. I did some Googling around, and I cannot find that the longer version of the story exists out there anywhere. It might. If anybody knows of it, please let us know. Thank you, by the way, Valerie, for mentioning John Truby, because I have been trying to remember in which writing book I found that statement about the two lovers being sort of one is the protagonist to the other antagonist. And I thank you. I didn't remember which book it came from. Must have been one I checked out of the library and returned great stuff. I'm going to bet, Valerie, that you will find my third and final short story for the season equally problematic for similar reasons. So that should be an interesting <laughs> discussion in a few weeks. Meanwhile, Stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Leslie, it looks like you've had some fun with point of view and narrative device in this story. Let's hear what you came up with. Oh, fun is the right word. Yes, I'm focusing on point of view and narrative device, which answers the question, how do I deliver my story to the reader? Point of view tells you whether your story is in first person or third person, for example, and whether it's written in the past or present tense. But the narrative device or situation specifies who, or at least what type of character is conveying the story, to whom, from where, 
in what form and why. The more I study point of view and narrative device and use it with my clients, the more I see the way it creates useful constraints to help writers make decisions in their stories, not at random or on a whim, but for solid story-based reasons that help them translate the ideas and feelings in their minds for the reader. Now, I explore this all in my bite-sized episode on choosing your point of view, and I'll include links to that and my point of view articles in the show notes. And incidentally, I'm working on the StoryGrid beat for point of view and narrative device. So if you have questions about this topic, please send them our way. Lately, I've been starting my analysis by thinking of the narrative problem presented by the premise and John Truby as our hero of the day. He is the one who clued me in to this idea that there is a narrative problem presented by a story's premise and that it's really important for us to pay attention to that. So what's the premise here? We have a young man living and working on a ranch in Wyoming, and he feels limited by his circumstances and because his attempt to move out of his situation ended in disaster, with severe injuries landing him in a hospital for a year. Buck is the younger brother in the family, and as I said before, no one really takes him seriously. If he had told his father and his brother Crosby that he was going to ride over the Continental Divide and down to Mexico, they would have laughed at him. In fact, they probably have a clever saying for just such occasions when Buck gets one of his wild ideas. That's why I think the shattering moment is when Martha takes him at his word. But she does call him out on the more ridiculous aspect of his plan to become an outlaw robbing banks. So I think the problem with this premise and with any worldview education story is that the change in the protagonist can be particularly subtle. The expression of the protagonist's gift is in finding the strength to hold on in place and finding new meaning in their existing actions. I'm starting to wonder if in short stories that the problem presented by the shattering moment is what's most relevant to the narrative device and point of view, but it's likely that the problems presented by the premise and the shattering moment are connected. In this case, and in many short stories, we want to feel the impact of that moment when everything shifts for the protagonist. And we haven't had two-thirds or so of a novel to build to this moment and set up all the conditions that make the change possible. So it makes sense that we need to be on the inside, experiencing the story from the protagonist's point of view. Now, here we don't get a lot of commentary from Buck. We see his reaction, and it comes to us completely through what he notices. And that is incredibly subtle. We don't have Thor finally coming to the realization that Asgard is comprised of the people, not the place. Which is not to compare these two stories. They are very different. They serve very different audiences. But it's all to say that the quality and intensity of what we think of as the big moments in a story tend to be different in short stories like Pilgrims. So with all of that as preface, what's the point of view? We have first-person point of view, what literary critic Norman Friedman would call I as protagonist. We have access to Buck's internal experience, but again, it's mostly limited to the things he notices, supplemented by his memories. Commentary is very spare. You just don't have room for it in a story of this length. So what's the narrative device? Well, we start with who. Buck is a young man who is struggling with his place at home, on the family ranch, and in the world in general. To whom is he speaking? It feels to me as though Buck is sharing his story with someone who's struggling to come to terms with the life they've got, as Anne so beautifully expressed the controlling idea. 
in what form or under what circumstances by implication is the story coming from the narrator? To me, it feels like a story told around a campfire. It doesn't feel like a written journal. It doesn't feel like an account written later in life. It just feels like a story around a campfire. When do I think this happened? The story events unfold in Buck's past, but it doesn't feel like the distant past. So if he's a young man here, I think probably just a few years into the future, once he's had time to metabolize that shattering moment fully. So the big question to me about narrative device is why does the narrator want to tell the story? And that's related to the controlling idea or theme. And I really like Anne's conclusion that it's about coming to terms with the life you've got. And I would say the means by which this change happens is that Martha's presence offers a challenge to his view, Buck's view, that is, that he's stuck and that his life lacks meaning. So how well does this work? I think it works pretty well, though I am deeply curious about the original version of the story and would like the opportunity to spend more time with these characters. What I think is the genius of this story is how the change in Buck is conveyed to us. It's all about what Buck notices, especially with respect to Martha. So in the beginning, it's about how she looks. And by the end, he's paying attention to what Martha notices and does or doesn't mention. So in other words, in the beginning, Buck is looking at Martha as a possible love interest. I mean, what else are you going to do with a girl under these circumstances, right? That's the implication. But by the end, Martha becomes his meaning-making mentor. So when you seek to answer the questions about narrative device that are not evident from the text, I encourage you to think about the writer's choices and wonder about why they included certain details and left other ones out. That's how I came to the conclusion that Buck seems to offer the same type of mentorship to someone else in need of this perspective by pointing out that what you notice creates your worldview and the meaning you make of your situation. Thank you, Leslie. I have to say the study of narrative device has been such a big aha for me and also for many of my clients. I introduced it last weekend to a room full of writers in our weekend intensive, and it was really fun to watch the looks of skepticism on their faces give way to puzzlement and, in a few cases, to see that coin drop and their eyes widen. I mean, this is really meaty stuff, and it's stuff that a lot of writers do not know to think about yet. It's great stuff. Okay, so we'd like to round out our discussion with a few key takeaways for writers who want to level up their own writing craft. What have we learned this week? Let's hear from Kim. This week, I want to leave you with, when you're in writing mode, we recommend knowing and choosing your genre first, and then crafting it with the conventions and obligatory scenes in mind for that genre. But when you're in editing and analyzing mode, either your own work or you're studying a masterwork, you can use conventions and obligatory scenes to help identify the genre, that is, to check your work. By identifying the conventions, that is, the characters, the settings, and the circumstances, we can determine what kind of life values are in play. And then in the moments of change, these fear moments, we can see which life values have actually changed. And that will help you decide which genre and the story spine that builds it. My primary takeaway is how useful short stories are in studying the craft of writing. They are different, of course. I talked about this for the listener question in our Love Actually episode. But the short form allows you to read several examples in a short time. Now, it's very different from Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight Archive, which I'm also reading right now. You must pay attention, of course, to the differences between short and long-form stories, but the same way we've found it useful to study films, for examples of global stories, short stories help us study narrative device and point of view. A more personal takeaway for me is that the education subgenre is really my favorite of the worldview genre, which 
isn't particularly relevant to anyone but myself, except that it's worth it to consider the genres that grab you over and over again. In a Fundamental Fridays post that we wrote a couple of years ago, Anne and I talked about our personal internal genres, and this is both a benefit and reveals potential blind spots for us as writers. Now, for me, Pilgrims really drives home the need to focus on the fundamentals of storytelling. Above all else, a story needs a strong foundation. All the pretty sentences and the imagery and the metaphors cannot save a story that doesn't have a stable foundation. This is not to negate the skill of line writing. That's important too. But the first step in the craft of storytelling is to nail the basics, and then we lay on all the other stuff. One of the most common problems that I see in client work, and it's a sin that I still commit myself in my first drafts, is too much exposition. We feel, like those of us who tend to do this, feel like we need to explain things to the reader. And even if we're committed to showing, not telling, we tend to show more things than we might need to convey the story. So if absolutely nothing else, I think we can study these super lean, possibly not quite working short stories as examples of how much exposition you can leave out and maybe when you can stick some back in. Well, to wind up our episode, we'd like to take a question from our listeners. This week's question came to us from our fellow StoryGrid editor, Tanya Lovetti, in the StoryGrid Guild. Tanya writes, If you have two very strong genres that seem to be competing with each other for the primary genre, at what point do you make your decision on which one is going to be your primary? I'm mostly asking about analyzing rather than writing, because in writing, you can just pick one. But when you're analyzing, it can be a bit confusing at times. And Kim is going to answer this one for us. Hi, Tanya. Thanks so much for your question. The straightforward answer is find the 15 core scenes, that is the five commandments of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff, and see what life values are at stake and change in those scenes, creating the story spine. But often, in a great story where two genres are woven so tightly, they both show up in those scenes. So next, you could look at the conventions and obligatory scenes for each genre in question. Is one of the genres only partially fulfilled? But again, what if you can spot everything for each? So this brings us to the core event. This is the big moment of the story that is the ultimate payoff for the reader's expectations. It is the moment when the life values are most at stake and the protagonist has the most to lose or gain. What is that moment in the story? How has the spine, the conventions and obligatory scenes been building toward this moment? What emotions are evoked in that moment? And how does it make you feel? Things like this may feel subjective, but at the end of the day, despite all our tools, stories are subjective. Your experience and interpretation is still a valid tool, one that you would be mistaken to leave out of your analysis. So ultimately, ask yourself, what genre feels global? What is the big meta why of this story for you? What are all the tools ultimately pointing to? What is the holy sum that is greater than the parts? I don't mean for this answer to be a cop-out, because without specifics, it is difficult to answer. So it's really about honoring your own intuition and interpretation, then using the tools to check your work. Make your choice and then make your case. What did you learn from the story? What do you think others could learn from it? These are just as important things to know. Thank you, Kim. And I think it's it's a good thing to point out here that we've done more than 100 stories at this point. We're getting pretty good at this. And we have looked today at an arguably important or well-written story and come up with different answers depending on where we come from. So it's important for everybody to remember that point about a subjective assessment of a work of art. You take from it pretty much what you bring to it in most cases. Well, if you have a question about short story structure or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT, or better still, by going to storygrid.com slash resources, clicking on Editor Roundtable Podcast, and leaving us a voice message. We love to get voice messages. And that wraps it up for this week. Great discussion, everybody. Thank you, Leslie, Kim, and Valerie, for your excellent editorial insights into Elizabeth Gilbert's Pilgrims. We hope our discussion has given everyone a better grasp of how to think about incorporating motif and subtext into your own stories, how to keep it brief, 
and how maybe you might want to not keep it quite this brief. You can find links and additional material in the show notes at storygrid.com. And if you want to connect to one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. And again, be sure to stop by pagesandplatforms.com to find out about my own editing and marketing services business for authors. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. Join us next time when Leslie will take another deep dive into point of view and narrative device in the 2015 novella Waters of Versailles by Kelly Robson. It's available to read for free on the Tor.com site and we'll link you to it. So why not give it a read during the week and follow along with us? Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye.